Hello and welcome to the St. Emlyn's podcast. I'm Simon Cowley and today we've got a little bit of a treat for you. This is another of our recordings from the St. Emlyn's live conference that took place at the end of last year. And this one is with Alan Grayson. Alan Grayson, you probably met in various different guises at conferences or through here on the blog or on the podcast. And I tasked him to talk about beyond ATLS. And I suppose in my head when we started off, I thought that we were going to be talking about things like Reboa and going into technologies where we're not actually doing them yet, but it's the next thing that we might be going to. I don't know, Reboa's controversial, but what Alan's done is taken a different take on it and looked at the sort of principles and ideas around ATLS and really sort of questioned whether or not we should actually be, you know, telling everybody that ATLS is rubbish. It's not really. It's still not a terrible course. It's got some great principles in there. And in the right setting for the right person, it's not a bad thing. Okay, if you're in a super duper helicopter flying around your jellybopter all over the place and doing amazing things, then taking to major trauma centers and all that kind of stuff, then great. Maybe you're not going to do everything that's an ATLS, but there are some good stuff in there. And what Alan's done is to try and look at where the goodness is and also to challenge ourselves about what we're doing in our own practice and whether we're actually up to speed as best we think we are. So have a listen and check out the other recordings from the St. Evans Live Conference and hopefully come and see us in Manchester when we do it again. Okay, bye. From Manchester, I'm from Yorkshire. <laughs> I only work here, and um, probably not for very much longer after what I said earlier on. It, there is a reason why it's called practicing medicine. When I get it right, I'll go and work in Yorkshire. Um, <laughs> Nick, there don't appear to be any slides. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm Alan Grayson. I'm here to talk to you about Beyond ATLS. And I, I'd like to start by being controversial, as Simon was earlier. I think ATLS has done some good things. Uh, who here agrees with that statement? Crikey, you're all clearly not on Twitter then, because if you say that on Twitter, then people will stomp on you. Um, ATLS has its failings, as, as, as any big, essentially, textbook of medicine does. It's, it's the transit time between actually looking at the evidence and writing the evidence and getting the peer review of the evidence and, and, and publishing the book. Uh, we're currently on the 10th edition of the ATLS manual. So I was going to show you some pictures. Um, and, and, and part of the problem for me, um, I think, is, is the fact that we use the word advanced in front of ATLS. You heard from Salim earlier on this morning about advanced life support. And advanced life support is, like ATLS, it's, it's good for one thing. It's about upskilling people who don't see trauma, who don't see cardiac arrests very often, and giving them a common language, a common procedural framework, a, a common set of competencies that they can that they can use to resuscitate the injured patient. And I think if we stopped calling it advanced, or at least referred to it as advanced compared to nothing, then we would have less of a problem with it. Um, so anybody who's done an ATLS course will know the story of the orthopaedic surgeon who was flying a plane. There was Anyway, uh, there was an orthopaedic surgeon uh, who in 1976, which is conveniently the year after I was born, uh, was flying his plane and crashed in a Nebraska cornfield. He, um, his wife was killed instantaneously. He suffered serious injuries. One child got away lightly and the other three children suffered a mixture of serious and critical injuries. Um, the ISS or the NISS weren't quoted at the time. Um, so they managed to flag down some transport. They turned up at the local rural hospital and they found it closed. They rustled up a doctor. I don't 
don't know where a doctor might be at eight o'clock at night. Um, and the orthopaedic surgeon was, was very upset to find that the standards of trauma care in rural Nebraska in 1976 were not what he could have delivered on his own in the field with minimal kit. So from then, from this ATLS was... <laughs> it's like the comedy interlude at the end because you're all getting tired, isn't it? So from this ATLS was born. And now, as I said before, ATLS is now in its 10th edition. Um, and ATLS has done some good things. There is some evidence to prove that ATLS has done some good things. There was a review in the World Journal of Surgery in 2013 that said ATLS is good for what it is designed to do, which is upskilling procedural skills and knowledge. However, that was in medical students and in residents. So clearly not designed for advanced trauma care professionals like you and I. There's also evidence of mortality benefit. If you go to Trinidad and Tobago, I've been. It's a lovely country. Well, I've been to Tobago, I haven't been to Trinidad. Um, and in Trinidad and Tobago, introduction of ATLS halved the mortality rate for traumatic injury. Thank you, Simon. Um, however, if you go to Greece, ATLS actually worsened the mortality rate. Now, there's probably a few differences between Greece and uh, Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, the availability of rum probably being one of them. Uh, so uh, those nice people at the Cochrane Centre actually did a review on the evidence of ATLS and they have found that there is no evidence of benefit in mortality for the ATLS course. So can we just accept that ATLS is a good tool for your FY2, your second year postgraduate doctor who doesn't see much trauma and can we move on? <coughs> The other thing about ATLS that I think hampers it is that it is a global course. Here are the 68 countries that ATLS is taught in. And I would put it to you that there's probably a significant difference between the healthcare system of the United States of America and Sudan. So to try and teach a common content across multiple different systems is going to be amazingly difficult. I'm not completely sure. I didn't get to the bit where DPL is in the ATLS manual that I downloaded from the web, uh, but I suspect that it's probably still there because in a resource-poor environment, that's probably what you're going to have, not a CT scan. So before I finish putting the boot into the ATLS course, I'd like to just move on to the classic trimodal pattern of deaths in trauma. You all know this slide? Everybody happy with this slide? It's a load of bollocks. <laughs> it is no longer true. There is data, well, it is no longer true in the UK, where I presume most of us work, and it's no longer true in the US. We no longer have a trimodal mode of deaths because we've got better at pre-hospital care, we've got better at emergency department care, and we've got better at intensive care. So we now have a unimodal, or at worst, a bimodal pattern of deaths, because sometimes the intensivists just don't get it right. <laughs> Sorry, Dan. So why does your trauma patient die? Why do your trauma patients die? Bleeding. Bleeding. Complications. Complications. So this bit here is still true. Most of trauma patients will die 
pretty much immediately or in the first few minutes after their injury, either due to catastrophic neurological injury or massive hemorrhage, either from transection of a great vessel or penetrating injury. If they're lucky enough to get to your emergency department, then they've got other travails that await them. They've got deteriorating neurological injury, they've got airway failure, which might be due to neurological failure, and they've got major hemorrhage. Dan spoke before about stopping the bleeding and changing our traditional A, B, C, D, E uh, approach to C, A, B, C. Who practices A, B, C, D, E in trauma and who does C, A, B, C? C, A, B, C, hands up. Excellent, we're clearly an enlightened audience. So we all should be stopping the bleeding and we've been kind of putting the boot into ATLS a little bit. However, shouldn't we first get our own house in order? Should we not, before we criticise anybody else? So how about these things? Oh, turning off the tap. Next slide, please, Sam. How about these things? Everybody happy with these? Yeah, pelvic binders, everybody happy with these? Everybody confident they can put them on? Yeah? Hands up if you're not confident. Okay. And how well do we think we do this? Not very well. Absolutely rubbish. So, in the Annals of the Royal College of Surgeons, this year, a, a evolved trauma system in a place called London. <laughs> Uh, took a thousand random cases over five years and they extracted all the patients who had a pelvic uh, injury. So in half of the patients who had a pelvic band placed, it was unsatisfactory. In 44.8 of the patients who had a pelvic injury, they didn't have a binder. Of these, 20% had an unstable injury. Nine of the 67 patients with a pelvic injury and no binder died. That's a potential number needed to harm of 7.4. What's our credo? First do no harm. We need to get our own shit together before we criticize anybody else. And how about these things? How many people use these? How many people are confident about putting these on that don't work in pre-hospital care? <laughs> the British Army taught squaddies, and I don't want to impugn our armed forces, they do a wonderful job. They taught squaddies, under fire, to put one of these on their mates when they've been hit by an IED in Afghanistan. So if people with minimal training put these on, why can't the hundred trained medical professionals in this room do so with any great reliability? <laughs> Just a question. And there's fairly good evidence that they work. In a systematic review published in the Journal of Anesthesia, Critical Care Medicine and Pain, there was a success rate of over 78% in all the studies that were looked at, with no complications of putting a tourniquet on. I put it to you, they were a bit afraid of these things because of potential complications, but that's in a fear that we don't need to be dealing with. As an aside, and please don't tweet this, um, even our own Ivory Tower Centre of Excellence Major Trauma Centre can't hold its head up too high. We ran out of Thomas Splints. This is a major trauma, we ran out of Major Trauma Centre and we ran out of Thomas Splints. 
So again, this change management needs to be done. It's a bit fuzzy. Details have been obscured to protect patient identity. So Chris spoke before about the red standby for the young patient bleeding and shocked. I would put it to you that the trauma airway is an equally scary place to be and probably upsets us as much, if not more. About 20% of the intubations that we do in MRI are for trauma. And I would also put it to you that this is not necessarily my playground. And those who've worked with me know I quite like doing critical care in the emergency department. I quite like intubating people. But in a case like this, I don't think I'm the best person to do it. I think the best person to do this is the anaesthetist that's on your trauma team. And what we need to do is we need to make it easy for them. We have been practicing with the salad technique today. They probably won't have been. We need to give them all the help that they can do because the trauma airway is a scary place. Full of blood, full of teeth, full of tomato sauce today, but sometimes full of uh, vomit and other unpleasantries. It is virtually impossible to intubate a patient with a cervical cholera. It is virtually impossible to intubate a patient if your inline manual stabilisation is improperly applied. We can take the collar off, that's not a problem, but we're afraid to do that. Why? The patient, deterioration, human factors. What if I said to you that there was about, there was an instance of somewhere between six to eight percent of cervical spine injuries, even in patients with craniofacial trauma? And what if I said to you that there was an instance of deterioration of around 0.3% that's been published in the literature. So your secondary injury rates are horrendously low. Would that make you take the collar off and make your job easier for the anaesthetist? Mm -hmm. We get one chance to do it right. It's about helping your team. It's about upskilling your colleagues. I like toys. I like these things. Anybody got a chance to play with the uh, CMAC earlier on? One of the things that I suggest you do when you go home is go and have a look in your resuscitation department and see what toys you've got to help your anaesthetists intubate. It's good for the rest of your patients that you intubate as well. More toys is always a good thing. I would put it to you from the evidence that a Macintosh laryngoscope is not what you want. There is fairly good evidence out there it's an alternative laryngoscope, a video laryngoscope is significantly better than the standard Macintosh. I would also suggest that a bougie and proper pre-oxygenation were the way to go. You get one chance to get it right. You get one chance to get it right. And what do you do if it goes wrong? You've also had a chance to practice front of neck access. This is an incredibly rare event, but it's incredibly stressful. And I would say that the time to find out that the only person on your trauma team has done a front of net access is you, is not at the point when you can't intubate and can't ventilate. <laughs> We're scared of this. We're scared of cutting holes into people. But if we start mentioning it at the pre-brief, and Simon took you through the step-up principle, then we get it into people's heads that this is something that we need to do. There you go. It's scary. Anybody done one of these in anger? <coughs> no. 
So that's about four of us in the room. We only do these in extremists. And you need to practice things that you only do in extremists. Drill for it, practice, prepare for failure. So what are you going to use to induce the patient? You heard from Dan that there wasn't particularly good evidence of anything. I'd like to suggest that ketamine was probably one of the better drugs to intubate the patient with. And I use ketamine, fentanyl and rocuronium. However, the most important thing to do is to get the dose right. It's called the Goldilocks principle, which Chris mentioned. You don't want too much because your patient's going to have a cardiovascular collapse. You don't want too little because especially in the case of rocuronium, you won't get good intubating conditions, but you want to get it just right. And that takes experience, that takes knowledge of the drugs that you're using, and that takes collaboration with your anaesthetist. You have a wider team, please use them. So, ATLS used to mention two litres of warmed Ringer's lactate. It doesn't anymore. Do you know what it mentions? Or oh, it did in the ninth edition that I looked at. One litre of ringer's lactate, because that's so much better. Crystalloids are only for putting your TXA in. Please, can we stop using crystalloids? What are we trying to achieve? We're trying to achieve stopping the hemorrhage. Now, we've done our bit. We've put a tourniquet on. We've put a pelvic binder on, hopefully appropriately. We've found a Thomas splint from the neighbouring hospital where they've all disappeared to. Uh, and, and we've tried to do our best to mechanically stop the bleeding. So now we need to restore circulating volume. And thankfully, we now have in the northwest the major hemorrhage protocol. And that's been standardised. So if you go to Barrow Furness, which is a lovely town on the coast of Cumbria, the receiving hospital for some of the Lake District's minor trauma, uh, their major hemorrhage protocol should be exactly the same as the one that we use in Manchester Royal Infirmary. And that's good, because we all know what we're doing. And because junior doctors rotate on a regular basis, then they know that it will be the same wherever they go, much in the same way that standardising the 222 call helped save lives across hospitals and uh, increased the speed to which first person on scene responders got to the cardiac arrested patient. However, we're trying to stop the bleeding and the two units of red cells that we carry in our blood fridge in the emergency department are coal, adding to the coagulopathy of trauma, have little calcium in it, adding to the coagulopathy of trauma, and don't contain any clotting factors, adding to the coagulopathy of trauma. Uh, so it's good for uh, augmenting cardiac output, but it's not particularly good for uh, stopping the bleeding. Uh, Kat spoke about uh, freeze-dried plasma. And there's some really good evidence that either fresh frozen plasma that's been defrosted or freeze-dried plasma can uh, really, really help aid mortality. I give you one example from Texas, published earlier on this year. Texas, there you go. Go Texas. Salim and Ash, that's just for you. So there's a review in one of the big weekly journals. Uh, my, my memory slipped because it's quite stressful standing here in front of you. Uh, it was either the New England Journal or the Lancet that looked at the um, Aeromedical Retrieval Service across the entire state of Texas, which is a huge area. And they started giving uh, plasma in a randomised controlled phase three trial to their patients. And they recruited over 500 patients. And th of which about half received plasma and half received standard care. And I suspect, knowing Ash and Sleem fairly well, that their trauma care is fairly good. Um, their 30-day mortality reduced from, that should be 33%, by the way, sorry about that, that's a, a typo, to 23.2%. That's a number needed to treat of 10.2. 
that's pretty good. Most of the treatments that we do don't have that. However, the week before, a trial called the Combat Trial was published. Now, this was based in a place called Denver, uh, which I understand is, is in Colorado, which is, is close to Texas, but, but uh, massively inferior. Um, they looked at slightly fewer patients. There was about 150 patients in a randomized controlled trial. And they, they used ground-based transport, and they showed no difference in mortality whatsoever. So what do you do when you get conflicting evidence? You, you do what Dan said, you, you look at the evidence and you drill down into it. Uh, the patients in Denver that they reported, they used, to, the, 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 both trials used two different scoring systems. Denver used NISS, uh, Texas used ISS. Uh, the patients in Denver were 50% penetrating trauma. In Texas, it was 20% penetrating trauma. The patients in Texas were older, they were sicker, they received more blood transfusions and more transfusions. So they're probably more like my true trauma patients that I see in the United Kingdom. So I would say, just to keep my American friends happy, that Texas wins. <laughs> um, we're now 15 years down the line since a bloke called Karen Brohe, who's, who's probably one of the more enlightened trauma surgeons in the United Kingdom, published a classic paper on coagulopathy of trauma. So hypothermic, coagulopathy, uh, acidosis, giving the lethal triad that causes more bleeding. How are we assessing this? I think we had a we, we had a, an ask further on. There was one person who put the hand up saying they've got Rotem. Yeah, you've got Rotem in your emergency department. Two people, three, four. Yeah, not very many. I, I, I envy you. What we have in my emergency department at the moment, we, we we can get one of the ODPs to run up to the cardiac lab, turn on the tech machine, wait for fifteen minutes to warm up, and then get one. But what we have is we have a standard coagulopathy screen, which is like a time machine. It's like a TARDIS. It takes you back in time. And it tells you what things were like an hour or so previously. <laughs> so if somebody could tell me why a test that's reported in seconds takes minutes and sometimes hours to report, I'd be very, very grateful. However, like the uh, people, the lucky people who've got uh, a Rotem or a tech machine in their emergency department, I think these, next slide please, Simon, will be appearing in an emergency department near you, certainly major traumas near you, in the very near future, which will give us lots of pretty pictures to look at. Brain trauma. It's always fun. I don't work in a brain trauma centre um, for some strange political reason that I don't understand. Trauma services in Greater Manchester were um, set up as a collaborative. So my friend Dan at the back there gets the brain and the spinal cord trauma and we in the other centre across town, the, 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 the nice one, the one that's got, well, us working there, um, we get supposedly penetrating trauma and blunt trauma that doesn't involve the head or the neck. But, but like your emergency department, uh, patients with traumatic brain injuries don't always turn up to the neurotrauma centre. How very dare they? <laughs> and I would suggest that there are fewer things more distressing for the team than seeing a young patient with a brain injury deteriorate in your eyes, coning in front of you, herniating their cerebellar tonsils through the foramen magnum. So we've changed a lot in emergency medicine. Um, when I started 15 years ago, we were afraid of cracking chests. We were afraid of uh, doing lateral canthotomies. We're still afraid of drilling into the brain. I don't want you to go all out and buy drills on the way home uh, because I don't want you to be in front of the GMC. However, 
People have been drilling holes in brains for years. This isn't rescue ICP. This is about saving a young person's life who's got an expanding cerebral hematoma <coughs> and serdiating their tonsils through the magnum. Now, it's supposed to be an eight-minute response that we get from our blue light services, and we do get an eight-minute response from our blue light services, but by the time the ambulance has arrived, we've photocopied the notes, we've found a coat, we've gone for a wee, we've loaded the patient onto the transfer stretcher, and we've got into the ambulance, it's probably at least half an hour. And the ICP is rising all the time. There is limited evidence published in the uh, journal Academic Emergency Medicine back in 2011 that what we probably should be doing if a patient is actively coning in front of us is doing an emergency department craniotomy, doing a trephination. Don't all go and do it, it needs more evidence. But like when we started doing cardio, uh, when we started doing thoracotomies, we were in trouble for it, but it was accepted because lives were saved. There is a very low risk of complications in the series published. 100% of patients had successful outcomes and there were no complications. That's a very limited series of 14 people, but it's worth further investigation. Again, dealing with brain trauma. What I've said is predicated on delivering good neurocritical care. I'm, I'm not a neurointensivist. I'm, I'm nowhere near bright enough. Dan, Dan is, and Dan does it all the time. Um, so one of the things that you need to do is you need to keep ICP under control. And one of the ways I would suggest that you do this is by using hypertonic saline rather than the mannitol. There's good developing evidence that hypertonic saline is better than mantle in terms of cerebral blood flow, controlling ICP and cerebral oxygenation. Why is John Lewis here? For those of you who don't know, for those of you who don't come from the United Kingdom, John Lewis is a uh, British chain of department <coughs> stores and it's well known for looking after its staff phenomenally well. One thing we don't do particularly well in the NHS is, is, is look after our staff particularly well. Um, I'm fairly cynical, hard-bitten Yorkshireman, but uh, about 18 months ago when uh, the arena bomb happened, and you can see the memorial over there, I started to realise the effect that the trauma that we see on a daily basis has on all of us, including me. I saw some very young doctors looking very old all the time. And like Simon, I have started pausing after resuscitations, particularly the difficult ones, take some time out. And I would put it to you that a stressed, upset doctor is not the person to be going to see a stressed, distressed patient straight away. It takes five minutes for us to debrief. The queue can go and hang for that time. One thing that does concern me about uh, debriefing is who debriefs the trauma team leader. It's very hard to be the person who's occupied all of their bandwidth leading the resuscitation. It's also very hard then to go on and be the focal point for all the emotions of the team, both positive and negative. So where do we, the trauma team leader, go and do this? The way some people are choosing to do it is by videoing their resuscitations and debriefing <coughs> in a true peer-led discussion at time down the line. And I would suggest that's a development that we need to do, but it needs all of your consultant colleagues and teams on board. One of the things I'm desperately hoping for is that Rick and his wife have a set of twins and they're called some and anybody. Because then, in resource, when one of my colleagues says, can somebody just get, or can anybody find me, then we've got that problem solved. Until that point, we need to communicate better. We've touched on closed loop communication. 
closed loop communication, is closed loop communication is, is essential. It's what the airline industry do. I, I'm very cynical about taking lessons from the airline industry. When they're in the sub 10,000 foot zone, it's silent. And what you're getting is you're getting a command, an acknowledgement, and a check that that's been done. This is a simple diagram of how that works. So, um, what I've talked to, you to, talked to you about today isn't exactly cutting edge science. I don't think we've done anything that uh, is particularly groundbreaking. I've certainly not mentioned Reboa, uh, which is still under trial as far as I'm aware. What I have talked about is about simple things being done well. What I'd like to think that we should be doing to improve our trauma resuscitation care is by being good team members, good team leaders, sensitive and responsive to the needs of the team and the patient, and being good human beings. Because that is essentially what we went into healthcare for. And that's what Centennial is all about, being a decent human being. Thank you very much.